There's one magistrate judge who ruled in a case a couple months ago that the terms of service actually waive the Fourth Amendment rights that would otherwise exist. I think that that conclusion is wrong. I think it's just flat out wrong. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law, and also Legal Blog Watch for Law.com. And I write a blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, today's show is sponsored by Clio, web-based practice management software at goclio.com. Well, the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution gives us protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. But what about the search of your email? Is it afforded the same level of protection? In a recent opinion in Portland, Oregon, Judge Michael Mossman ruled on the subject, citing a difference between the postal mail and email, ruling that the electronic transfer of communication by virtue of a footprint on the Internet is not private. In this specific case, we're going to talk about the government and why they had they felt they had probable cause for a search and ask Google to provide nine months of a Gmail subscriber's email seeking evidence of a crime. Uh, this area of law remains unsettled. Uh, Judge Mossman uh, indicated that in, in his opinion. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about it today and try and... Uh, get uh, at least some clarification, if not answers, about the application of the Fourth Amendment to email and uh, other online documents. Helping us do that today will be two guests. First of all is Professor Oren S. Kerr, uh, professor at George Washington University Law School. Professor Kerr teaches criminal law, criminal procedure, and computer crime law. Before joining the faculty there, he was an honors program trial attorney in the computer crime and intellectual property section of the criminal division of the U.S. Department of Justice, as well as a special assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. He writes uh, for the uh, widely popular legal blog, The Volokh Conspiracy, uh, and he's also recently uh, published an article applying the Fourth Amendment to the Internet, a general approach. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Professor Kerr. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. And Bob, our next guest is Jason Paroff. He is the Director of Computer Forensic Operations with the Electronic Evidence Services Group of Kroll on Track. In addition to his management role, Jason, as an attorney, has examined numerous computers and computer systems for evidence of fraud, theft of trade secrets, harassment, and other improper civil and criminal conduct. He's testified in various state courts and federal district court as an expert witness in the field of computer forensic, and he's been a conference panel member and presenter as well as a guest lecturer at Columbia University's School of Business. Prior to joining Kroll, Jason worked as a senior prosecutor in the Rockland County District Attorney's Office in New York, where he investigated and prosecuted white-collar and computer crime. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Jason Paroff. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. Well, let's start off the show by discussing Judge Mossman's opinion on the Fourth Amendment uh, with respect to email. Warren, can you kind of give us an overview? Sure. Uh, This is an opinion on what notice is required, either under federal statutory law or the Fourth Amendment, 
when the government gets a search warrant to obtain the contents of an email account. So uh, the Federal Stored Communications Act, part of the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, requires a warrant for email as a statutory matter, at least in uh, some circumstances, and we can talk about which circumstances are, or it does or doesn't require a warrant for. Uh, but in this particular case, the question was whether there's a notice requirement when the government obtains that warrant, and if someone has to be noticed, uh, given notice, who? Uh, and in particular, is there a requirement of notice just to the ISP? Is there a requirement of notice to the account holder? Uh, and Judge Mosman concludes that as a matter of statutory law, there's a notice requirement to the ISP, uh, in, in, in the, the, the email provider, the Yahoo, the Google, uh, in, involves. Uh, but there is no constitutional requirement of notice uh, to the customer or subscriber of the email account. So the government obtains the warrant. They notify the ISP, and of course they have to notify the ISP because that's who they're working with to get the contents of the email account. But they don't then have to independently uh, give notice to the person whose email is being seized. Jason, I wonder if we could uh, bring you into the conversation and, and just uh, ask, I mean, it's, Judge Mossman, in this opinion, I guess, assumes for the sake of argument that, that the Fourth, or at least for the sake of uh, his rationale in the case, assumes for, that uh, the Fourth Amendment applies to email. But uh, that that question uh, seems anything but settled. Uh, you know, what are what are the public's misconceptions about their the, the security and the privacy of their email? Well, I think you know. First of all, you have to realize that the Fourth Amendment really applies to the government's actions. So we're talking about it applying to the government coming in and seizing your email. Um, and a lot of people think that, that they just have a, a right of privacy under the Fourth Amendment um, to their email communications, and, and they really don't. You know, what, what gives the, the individual the rights here uh, in question to privacy, I think, is really the Stored Communications Act that was enacted by Congress. Um, and so, you know, I agree with Professor Kerr in, uh, um, entirely that this case is really more about... Um, what the government has to do after they seize email from a third party than it is about the privacy of that email uh, itself. And so, you know, in this case, the, the court holds that when you turn your email over to a third party, um, you lose some of the privacy interests in that email and you lose certainly the control over it, and that if the government seizes it from a third party, while they have an obligation to leave a copy of the warrant, as Professor Kerr said, with the third party, they don't really have an obligation to track down either the sender, the recipient, the true owner, the account holder, whatever you want to call it. Um, the court, you know, didn't find that the government had to do that in this case. And Professor Kerr, I mean, we're talking here about email, but is are, are these issues limited to email or, or are they equally applicable to any kind of uh, documents stored online? Yeah, the, the, the concept is a broader one, and, and I think you really need to... Um, kind of step back away a little bit from the, this particular decision uh, from the summer, the Judge Mosman opinion, and, and look more broadly at how the Fourth Amendment applies to the Internet, to the cloud, to all these remote networks. Um, we don't entirely know. There's a lot of uncertainty here, but at least the initial opinions out there are saying that there's Fourth Amendment protection for the contents of communications, which would be email, uh, could just be remotely stored files if you have a remote storage site, password-protected site, where you keep uh, remotely stored files, you probably have Fourth Amendment protection in that. Um, on the other hand, there's no Fourth Amendment protection for non-content information like uh, uh, um, 
IP addresses or email addresses. And, and I think here the courts are really drawing an analogy between the telephone network and the Internet, which I think is a pretty, pretty uh, sensible analogy to draw. In the same way that with the telephone call, you don't have Fourth Amendment protections in the numbers dialed, but you do have Fourth Amendment protection in the contents of your calls, uh, courts are basically applying that same approach to the Internet. Um, so, so where Judge Mossman's opinion really fits in here is it's in talking about the notice question, which is a pretty narrow question, Judge Mossman says a lot of pretty broad things about the nature of email, which could also support the conclusion that there's no Fourth Amendment protection for the contents of communications. Uh, and there have been a couple other cases on that, which I'd be happy to talk about. Um, but it's the uncertainty on the broader issue, which I think Judge Mossman's opinion really tapped into, rather than Judge Mossman's specific opinion in this one case that really is where the, the heart of the matter is. How does this affect attorneys? I mean, we send emails to clients and clients respond to us. We expect them to be uh, privileged. Uh, where does this opinion fit into that? Well, the, the opinions I've seen on that question say that there is a uh, uh, attorney-client reasonable expectation of privacy in email. Uh, the, the hard part is that the, the attorney-client standard and the Fourth Amendment standard use similar language but have an entirely different meaning. So in the attorney-client privilege setting, the question of reasonable expectation of privacy is whether a person could reasonably expect that the email that is sent would remain private. The Fourth Amendment issue is completely different, and it uses the catchphrase reasonable expectation of privacy, but it's best to understand that as really a legal fiction. It doesn't mean that you sit around and say, what are the chances that the email is going to be disclosed, or what are the chances the government's going to get it? The chances the government is going to be getting your email through a search warrant is incredibly low. But the question is not the likelihood of it happening. The question is more the, the normative question that's always in play in Fourth Amendment law of how, many, how much privacy rights should people have, what powers should the government have. And so the courts tell us when there's a reasonable expectation of privacy, and they're, they're looking at a lot more than just what a reasonable person would expect. Jason, from your perspective, does it matter where the email or other documents uh, is stored, uh, whether it's out there in the cloud or whether it's uh, been downloaded to somebody's computer? And, and also, does it matter what the what the terms of service say? I mean, this 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 Judge Moshman case talked about Gmail and, and made reference to to the terms of service that a user agrees to when they sign up for Gmail. It, it, should that matter? Well, I think it certainly mattered to Judge Mossman in, in his opinion. Um, you know, you you have a difference. You have a big difference between a search of your own house, your own property, your own computers, uh, and a search of data that is, that you turn over. This is really what the judge was saying. When you turn this over to a Google or a Microsoft or or another ISP, um, and then the searches of their location. Um, that that really is a big difference, um, at least with respect to Fourth Amendment law and, and the SCA. Um, so I think it does matter, you know, for consumers, uh, you know, practice, does it matter practically, I guess, is, is the big um, question there, which is, you know, if you are doing emails and you're storing all your emails on your computer um, because you're using something like Outlook and you pop the email down and store it on your computer, and then that becomes the only place they're located. Does it matter if um, somebody were to search for them in your house and find them on your computer versus if they were to find your email uh, via a search warrant, 
from something like Google or Gmail. Um, to the user, I'm not sure that it matters that much, but I do think with respect to search warrant law, Fourth Amendment law, um, and Judge Mossman's opinion, I think he drew the distinction there, and I think it matters quite a bit. Um, and, you know, terms of service, you mentioned terms of service for places like uh, Google, Gmail, Yahoo, uh, all of that. Um, I think that plays a, a big part. You know, when you entrust these communications to online services, um, all of them really are, they're going to have very similar provisions that basically say, look, we are a legitimate business. You can, you know, we're providing this service to you, but we are not going to hide, you know, information from the government on your behalf if that information uh, might be evidence in a criminal case or might be, uh, you know, something that could be the subject of a warrant or something like that, that they will turn that over uh, in cooperation with um, legal process, you know, search warrants, things like that. So, you know, I think the judge was taking this occasion to basically reinforce that and say, look, you are turning this over to a third party. When you do that, um, you lose some control over it, and we're not going to force the government to basically chase you down and let you know that they've seized it from the third party. Or in some of this also has, you mentioned that it has some applicability to the telephone system that we use. Doesn't it also have some applicability to the mail system that we use? I mean, your computer essentially sends a piece of mail out into the world and then it's received by someone else. Yeah, I think uh, these initial decisions that have been saying that the computer is a, or computer networks are similar to the telephone network are also saying it's similar to the postal network. So in the postal network setting, and these are rules that go back over 100 years, you have Fourth Amendment protection in the contents of your letters that are sent in sealed envelopes, but you don't have Fourth Amendment protection in what's on the outside of the envelope. So you don't have Fourth Amendment protection in the fact that the mail was sent in the to-from address, in the uh, uh, postmark, uh, the weight of the package, the size of the package. The outside stuff uh, is not protected, but the inside stuff, the, the uh, uh, contents of the letter, are protected. And, and courts are, are basically applying that same analogy. Those ones that have, have reached this issue are applying the same analogy so far, saying that the contents of the communication are like the inside of the letter, uh, and the non-content information is like the outside of the letter. And, that, and that's an easy analogy, I think, in the case of email. It starts to get a lot trickier when you start talking about, say, surfing the web. That's going to be a, a whole... That, that's a very difficult... Uh, set of questions, but the email case is actually, I think, pretty pretty straightforward there. Um, in terms of the terms of service issue, there's one magistrate judge who ruled in a case a couple months ago that the terms of service actually waive the Fourth Amendment rights that would otherwise exist. I think that, that conclusion is wrong. I think it's just flat out wrong. Uh, and, and you can see in the magistrate judge's opinion that the judge is saying, gosh, if I, if I don't say that the terms of service waive the privacy rights, then I'm stuck concluding that the federal statute is unconstitutional. Uh, and I don't want to say that the federal statute uh, is unconstitutional, so I won't say that. Um, well, I, 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 think, I think the conclusion is that that part of the federal statute that allows the government to compel email with less service than a warrant is, in fact, unconstitutional. Uh, and that the, the terms of service might, in some cases, give the provider third-party consent rights to access the email, but it doesn't waive an expectation of privacy. And a waiver of an expectation of privacy would mean the government could just go to Gmail and grab all of its servers without the consent of Gmail and look through all of that. Now, I just think that's not the case. 
Warren, I know in your in your article on applying the Fourth Amendment to the internet, um, I know that's on SSRN.com. I don't know whether it's. I believe it's supposed. It's, it's scheduled to be published in the Stanford Law Review. Yeah, it's going right? to be in the Stanford yeah. Law Review in about six months, I think. Okay, why don't you uh, give us the, the sort of the broad thesis of, of your article in terms of what you propose in terms of applying the Fourth Amendment to the internet? Yeah, in, in the article, I, I propose a, a framework for applying the Fourth Amendment to the internet that builds on and really elaborates uh, from these analogies to the telephone network and the, and the postal network. And the idea is to come up with some kind of a technology-neutral way of applying the Fourth Amendment in the network environment. So what I argue is that what networks do is let us do remotely what we used to have to do in person. So when we send or receive a communication over a network, it could be a postal network, telephone network, the Internet, whatever it is, um, what we're doing with the network is we're allowing the network to come to us, what we used to have to go out into the world to do. So what I argue is that if you want the Fourth Amendment to apply roughly similarly to the Internet as it does to the physical world, in the sense of giving the Internet the same amount of privacy protection as we get in the physical world, the non-content information should not be protected because the non-content information is about how the, how the package is delivered, and that's really what would have used to be in public. Uh, so if you needed to hand-deliver a package, you'd leave your house, walk to the place where it's going, you're going to deliver it, drop it off, and it's open to the public, not protected by the Fourth Amendment. The fact that the package was delivered, where it was from, where it was to, the size of the package, and that when we use a network, the non-content information, the outside of the package, the uh, header of the email, that's what the network is using that really is the same information as you used to get in public. So. So the argument is that these, these courts applying the, the analogies of the postal network uh, and the telephone network are correct, uh, and that those are, that's the right way to think about applying the Fourth Amendment to the Internet. But it provides kind of a, a conceptual reason why those analogies are right. And, and, and the goal there is to really say, okay, judges, you're just reasoning by analogy, and you're not sure if these analogies are correct. Well, there's a reason why these analogies actually work. This is, uh, uh, this is how you get to a Fourth Amendment that does the same things online that it does in the physical world. Well, we are about at the point in our show where we need to take a short break. When we return, we'll talk more about the Fourth Amendment and email and what can and cannot be retrieved in and out of court. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Don't miss out on the latest in new media marketing opportunities for your firm. Contact Deb Kernan at 781-551-9960 and learn all about the Web 2.0 revolution. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're back with Oren S. Kerr, who's a professor of law at George Washington University Law School, and Jason Paroff, who's the director of Computer Forensic Operations with the Electronic Evidence Services Group of Kroll on Track. Well, we were 
talking about how to apply a framework for the analysis of of this before the break. And, and Jason, I'm interested in, in your thoughts about what the uh, opposite side of the argument is on on trying to deal with these Fourth Amendment issues. Well, I think that um, what, what we see typically in the civil sector, uh, you know, we're talking about Judge Mossman's opinion a lot, um, and it's a criminal case. And um, generally, when you're talking about Fourth Amendment issues, you're talking about um, the government coming in and searching and seizing a, a home or a place of business and the information in there. Um, most of the time, at least in, in my position, my company, we're dealing in the civil side of things rather than the criminal side and conducting computer forensics in the um, uh, civil setting or the corporate setting. And uh, I think what's important to understand there is that um, generally you have even less of an expectation of privacy in the workplace, in the contents of your communications, either because um, the company owns the computer and the computer system uh, that that you're working on, or because you have waived any right to privacy that you otherwise might have had in the corporate setting in exchange for employment by that company. And so what we find when we're doing computer forensics in the, in the private sector, in the corporate setting, is that um, we're regularly examining the email of employees um, to try to give the company a better idea of what employees may or may have not may not have done, uh, whether their actions may have been criminal or just civil in nature. Uh, it really depends. You don't know until you actually take a look. Um, but generally, companies are trying to get at um, what's going on on their systems and uh, with their books and records and things like that and examining email of employees, former employees, uh, and things like that is a regular part of it all. Um, so to the extent that, you know, we're discussing Judge Mossman's opinion and kind of a lack of, of privacy maybe in emails at, a, at an ISP or a Gmail or a Yahoo or something like that, um, you find even less of that um, privacy in the workplace, I would say. Uh, and so that makes it... Um, a fairly interesting set of questions and environment uh, as well. You know, we said earlier that this, this you both agree, this, this opinion from Judge Mossman is, is really talks about notice. Uh, and, and part of the issue there is, I guess, whether whether it's sufficient to give notice to the, the ISP or whoever it is who's, who's in possession of these emails or, or whether the the owner of the email account has to also be given notice. I, I mean, in the, in the criminal context if a if a, a client calls a lawyer and says guess what's just happened how's a how's a lawyer supposed to respond to this what what advice can you give some of the lawyers out there who who may be encountering these issues of searches and seizures of email professor Carey, do you have any thoughts on that or is that just too abstract of a question this is in the uh, criminal setting details? yeah in the criminal setting uh, well the first thing a lawyer should do in the criminal setting is try to use the ninth circuit's recent decision in comprehensive drug testing uh, this is a truly blockbuster on bonk opinion that completely rewrote the rules on computer search and seizures in the home environment uh, we don't know if that opinion applies to the remotely stored files environment like email, but it, it might. And if I were uh, an attorney in that setting, I would, I would immediately rush to court with a motion to return property, uh, asking a court to apply that framework to, uh, to the remote email setting. 
Um, now, that's obviously we're sort of moving on to a bunch of other issues, but but there are a lot of uh, clever, creative arguments for defense attorneys to be making in these email and, and computer search cases. The interesting thing is that relatively few defense attorneys are making these arguments. They're they're right there for the picking. So um, uh, there there's a lot that can be said, uh, a lot of arguments that can be made, but but the Ninth Circuit's decision rejuvenating and really sort of reinvigorating the motion of return of property is is where I would start. And it's uh, that case is United States versus comprehensive drug testing. It's an en banc decision. Is there a problem there in Judge Mossman's decision when he when he seems to say, and again, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but he seems to be saying that email is not property? I don't think he goes that far. I mean, this is, and actually, you know, a mea culpa on, on my part, I think I helped create a little bit of the firestorm over this opinion with a blog post that initially misread Judge Mossman's opinion. And, and I was misled by the fact that he does include a lot of very broad language about the nature of email, sort of, um, you've disclosed it to a third party. It is not private. It's not your stuff. Um, there's a lot of language in there, and, and I, I misread the opinion because I turned to that page and said, wow, that's exactly the argument you would make if you were trying to say that email is not protected by the Fourth Amendment. And that's what I thought he was arguing. So if you, know, if you read the opinion closely, which I did the next day and said, oops, I've misread this opinion, uh, you say, oh, well, this is actually in context, in the context that it's a minor claim that's at issue. But there is very broad, very broad language. I mean, it's it's... The, the, the argument you would make to say that the, the uh, Fourth Amendment does not apply at all to email would be you've disclosed it to a third party. This is stuff you've shared with someone else. You've said, in effect, hey, Internet service provider, please deliver this message. Here is the message. Pass it on. And if you tell somebody a message and say, please send it on, you've waived your Fourth Amendment rights upon disclosing it to the third party. I don't think that's how the Fourth Amendment should apply, because I think when you send your email to an ISP, uh, uh, you're not sending it to them in the sense that the contents are not going to them. You're sending it through them, eventually. They're really just an intermediary. But the argument would be that you've disclosed it to a third party, and you don't have any privacy rights at all. And there's certainly uh, there's parts of that language in Judge Mossman's opinion. Right. I guess the part I was focusing on was when he says, a section of his opinion, when he says no property was taken, and, and he, he says an additional twist in the case of electronic information is that no property is actually taken or seized, as that term is used in the Fourth Amendment context. Right. Yes. This gets into another tricky question, uh, and one I have to admit I have another forthcoming article on, <laughs> okay. um, uh, on when computer data is seized. So to what extent is copying data a seizure of the data? Uh, and the hard part there is that the courts have said a seizure of data is uh, taking away a possessory interest in that data. And if you copy data, well, you're not really taking anything away. You're, you're giving up a copy, and you're taking away maybe sort of an abstract exclusive right. Um, but, but you're not taking away that which is already there. So, so that's another open question in the courts of exactly what it means to seize data and is copying a seizure. Jason, what is it that, that people can do to protect their emails? Is there any type of I mean, protocol? Should we be using encryption? Should we be using uh, disclaimers? Based on this opinion and how things are being viewed, is there any way to really protect your emails? Well, I think, you know, I don't think disclaimers would really do it. I mean, I think what we're talking about here, because you have to remember in this decision anyway, and, and generally, um, you know, a search warrant would trump any kind of disclaimer, um, I, I think. You know, here we're, we're not arguing about whether 
um, the search warrant was valid or not. It appears to have been valid, and therefore um, the government had the right to seize that uh, the contents of, of that email and those messages. Um, so I think, you know, the only way that um, something like this couldn't have happened or, or would have been thwarted, I guess, is if the communications were encrypted, such that, you know, yeah, the government could have gone in to seize them and could have seized the communications, but they would have been totally encrypted and, and the encryption wouldn't be easily broken and therefore um, they wouldn't actually be able to, to see the contents of those communications. Um, but, you know, every... Security is always balanced by ease of use and the cost or the costs associated with it. Um, the more you secure something, the harder it is to get at when you need it and the more costly it is to actually do. So while there are inexpensive encryption solutions, um, they may not be great solutions as far as how easy they are to use. Maybe they're very difficult to use. And every um, company is different in terms of what they might need or they might, they might want in terms of security. Uh, and so, you know, I really think that it's, it's a business decision that companies and law firms are going to have to make. And certainly, um, you know, you're starting to see some of that creep into the industry or, or various industries, I should say. For instance, uh, it's very common now with banks. You know, when they are um, uh, exchanging emails with clients on mortgage refinances and things like that, it's very common to have to actually go to a certain website, register in a certain way, obtain a certain key, whether that key is a password or something that resides on your machine as a cookie or something else. Whatever it is, it's very common to not be able to communicate financial information without first authenticating, you know, who you are and the fact that you are the intended recipient. And so, you know, really I think in terms of securing communications and what people can do about it, you know, the answer, I guess, is encryption. You know, that's probably the best and only real way to 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 do that here, I think. There's probably other ways, but right now that seems to be the best one to me. But, um, you know, with encryption comes its own set of problems and concerns, and every business has to examine that individually and find the best balance between security, cost, and ease of use for for its needs. Well, I'm sorry to say we're just about out of time for this program, but before we wrap up, uh, we would like to give each of you an opportunity to share your final thoughts on this topic. And also, uh, if you'd like to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you, uh, either contact information or a website or blog or whatever you'd like to point them. But uh, uh, Professor Kerr, let's start with you. Uh, I, this is an incredibly interesting and exciting area of Fourth Amendment law right now. Uh, the courts are just struggling with these questions. They're trying to apply the Fourth Amendment in the network environment, in the standalone environment. They're they're just grappling with the big questions. So uh, if you're a defense attorney practicing in this area, there is a lot uh, to do. There are a lot of arguments to make. Uh, brand new claims that people have never raised before, and, and, and you should be uh, creative in making them. Uh, and in terms of, uh, if you need some ideas, I've got a lot of articles on these topics. Uh, and if you just Google my name with SSRNs for the Social Science Research Network, you'll get to my uh, uh, list of articles, and you can actually download articles. And my name is Oren Kerr, uh, and that with SSRN will get you to the articles and, and also has contact information. Thanks a lot. And Jason, how about you? Uh, yeah, I think I would say, you know, as we march through time here and and we start to 
see greater and greater storage devices, more powerful computers, cloud computing, information uh, in our homes, in the cloud, with other service providers, at our office, at work. You know, you get the, the point. As we start to see more and more information out there all over the place, I think that we should never really assume that the information is secure or, or not viewable by people that we wouldn't want to have view it, uh, whether it's competitors um, or um, people that you don't want to have see your health information, whatever the case may be. So I think every company, every law firm should examine those issues uh, and use due diligence to make sure that they are, in fact, securing the communications that they need to have secured um, in any given case. So I think that's really what I get from this opinion and from the discussion, and I really think it's a great one, and I thank you for having me. Um, if, you want, if anybody wants to contact me, you can uh, either call me at 1-800-347-6105. You can visit our website at www.crollontrack.com. That's K-R-O-L-L-O-N-T-R-A-C-K.com. And you can email me at jparoff, that's J-P like Peter, A-R-O-F-F, at CrollOnTrack.com. And thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on the show. And Bob, that does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And a thanks to each of our guests for being on the show today. And also a reminder to our listeners that we're also in the podcast section of iTunes. Craig, good talking to you as always. And I look forward to another show next week. We'll be back then to discuss another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.